0: Good morning. morning. As uh, Abby said, Chuck is out of town. He's enjoying uh, an anniversary celebration with Carolyn, and uh, I believe Stephen is still overseas in Russia, so you got third string this morning. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes uh, some of your best work can be done when you're out sick or when you're asleep. Uh, I'm not referring to this message, by the way. In 1885... Robert Louis Stevenson had a nightmare while he was ill, which became the spark, it became the impetus for him writing The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, Stevenson says that he was actually disappointed that his wife awakened him during the nightmare as he considered it a fine boogie tale uh, that was going to inspire him for the writing. Well, he set out to write this Gothic novel, But when his wife first read the the manuscript, she thought it could be developed and improved considerably. And so Stevenson burned it, uh, knowing that he actually might be tempted to just turn back and and revise that rather than write afresh. And and legend has it that while he was convalescing, that he then produced Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in just three days. Uh, the story, if you don't know, the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, it's a, it's about a lawyer. It features a lawyer, John Utterson, who has a friend, Dr. Jekyll, who's a respected scientist, uh, who has a friend, in turn, Mr. Hyde. And as the story unfolds, Hyde is witness to being a, a murderer, twice actually. On On one of the occasions, Dr. Jekyll steps up on behalf of Mr. Hyde and he pays restitution to the family of the child, who Hyde ran over. And then on the second uh, occasion, the murder weapon, a cane is found on Jekyll's property in his home where Hyde was known to, to frequent. And at that point, Jekyll uh, produces a note from Hyde saying that, well, he's left town. He's very sorry for all the trouble that he's caused. Um, but Utterson notes that this note, in time, he, he notices that this note looks like Jekyll's handwriting. Uderson, who uh, interacts with both Jekyll and Hyde in the, in the book, he describes them as completely different people. Jekyll is well-mannered. He's well-respected. Hyde, who he also sees, is monstrous, grotesque. Of course, those of you who have read the story um, know that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are actually one and the same person. In fact, at the end of the novel, after Hyde has been discovered having apparently uh, committed suicide, Jekyll's testament surfaces as well where he confesses that he concocted a potion that would allow him to temporarily undergo a metamorphosis into a monster that would then let out these dark impulses that he had deep inside. And the only problem was that in time, even when he stopped taking the potion, he would involuntarily transform into Hyde still, with his ability to become Jekyll, eventually disappearing altogether. Well, even if you've never read the, uh, the novel, you know that Jekyll and Hyde, what, what that phrase means, right? Is It's become really kind of an idiom in our language to communicate how one person can have dual personalities. One that's happy, uh, respectable, calm, and the other furious and really evil. And that, that change between those two personalities can sometimes uh, take place at the flip of a switch. We saw that metamorphosis in our reading this morning. It began with these words. If you, uh, if you have a phone with a Bible on it or if you want to look at a Bible and you're, um, in the pews, I welcome you to do that. We're in Esther 5, the second half of that. But it began, our reading began with these words. Haman went out that day glad... And pleased of heart. But when he saw Mordecai in the king's gate, he was filled with anger against him. He was enraged. This is really kind of a classic example of an angry drunk, if you will. right? Uh, Remember, Haman's been drinking with the king. The wine has been flowing at uh, this feast. And so Haman is feeling really good. But drinking also means that your emotions are up, your inhibitions are down. And when he sees Mordecai disrespecting him, the fuse is lit once again. Maybe you've seen this firsthand. Um, Someone's at a bar or a party and they've had too much to drink, and then suddenly, unexpectedly, the monster comes out. They want to argue, they want to complain, they won't stop talking, and they want to fight. And there's no talking them down. There's no talking them out of it. I mean, Mordecai should be happy that he's favored with the king. But instead, he's crestfallen and then furious. For a moment, of course, he regains composure. He recounts his splendor. But then he adds, you know, all of this does not satisfy me if I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. not one more day of that. Something's got to be done. Some of you may be wondering why this, uh, why I've attached this picture to this slide. I don't know if you can see it very well. It's fairly small. This is a photo of a sculpture that sits within the pulpit of Saint Paul's Cathedral in Liege, Belgium. I wonder, does does anyone know who this is a depiction of? I feel like somebody is whispering it, but somebody got it right in the first service. This is a depiction of Lucifer. Lucifer, the fallen angel. You may uh, notice that these are actually wings that encompass him. He's looking, of course, crestfallen. He's holding a crown that he may have worn at some point, as well as a broken scepter. You may notice the little piece at at his feet. Though he is a strong man, he's also bound. I don't know if you can see it, but there's a a shackle around his uh, ankle there. And a piece of forbidden fruit sits at his feet. Can you imagine me preaching here with a a picture of Lucifer right here on the pulpit, right? I imagine you could because I've got a picture of him right here on our screen. Strange. You know what's even more strange? Why, Why is he so lovely? Right? Looks like a Greek god. I think that surprises us somewhat. Well, at the the risk of confounding us this morning, which is not my desire, but uh, I want to do a little examination and exploration of Lucifer. And the reason for that is that Lucifer, also known as Satan, is, I think, pictured in our Esther reading this morning in the person of Haman. You may remember that two weeks ago I suggested that I believe that we can tie the characters of Esther to the gospel and even the gospel players, if you will, in the gospel narrative. There is, first of all, Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, who went by the the title Shahanshah, which meant the king of kings. Then there's Esther, his beloved, who's tied to the king, of course. But she's also one with her people, right? Her identity as a Jewish is very important in this account. She is the one who's going to have to serve as the intermediary and even the savior of her people. She will be the one who will have to save them from the law that stands against them, that condemns them, by putting her own life on the line, if necessary. She says at one point, if I perish, I perish. She's willing to go to death for her people. But she resolves to represent her people before the king in any way that she needs to then Mordecai represents us. We are the ones who are separated for the king on the outside of the king's court who need this mediation from Esther. And if, and if the king shows his favor to Esther, well, then that will also fall upon us. And then there's Haman. Now, reading today focused upon him. Haman is, of course, the adversary. He's the protagon, or the uh, antagonist. He's the false Accuser and the enemy of God's people, so he must play the role of Satan in this gospel narrative. But you know what? I don't think that we should picture Haman uh, with horns and a pitchfork, uh, even as I don't think we should picture Satan that way either, necessarily. Um, In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us that Satan masquerades as what? That's right, an angel of light. Uh, Satan disguises himself that that way because that's what he once was. Uh, He is a fallen angel. Before he was Satan, he was Lucifer. Lucifer means um, star of the morning. And here's what we should believe concerning Lucifer. According to the scriptures, first of all, we learn that Lucifer is a fallen angel who fell because he was filled with pride. With regard to Lucifer, the prophet Ezekiel says, You were an appointed guardian cherub. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. It says, Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. You know, we may not have a lot to go on there. Uh, Our sovereign Lord probably knows that we don't need to know all the details of how Satan became proud, or why exactly he rebelled. But we are told that it was pride that morphed Lucifer into Satan. Isaiah 14, likewise, teaches us that Satan was a member of the heavenly host. Isaiah prophesies, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star. That's where we get the name Lucifer, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You see, just as we see that Lucifer was full of pride, which led to his downfall, so then here we also see more specifically that Lucifer wanted to fill the place of the king. He wanted to sit in the position of God alone. This is, of course, in line with how Satan tempted our first parents, right? Temptation wasn't simply to just rebel for the sake of rebellion or even just because the fruit was pleasing to the eye. No, instead he said, God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be like him. Don't you want to be like God? Says Lucifer. I do. Lucifer, who had a measure of splendor, wanted to be king, and he, he projected that desire upon those he tempts. Lucifer was full of pride. Lucifer wanted to fill the place of the king. And then thirdly, we learn that Lucifer is filled with passionate fury. Because of his pride, he's lost his place in heaven. Lucifer's been cast down to the earth where he will now rage at God's people with passionate fury. And here we no longer need to picture him as an angel of light. I think it's fine to picture him differently. And that's because the scriptures do. The scriptures call him a dragon. The revelation of Jesus Christ given to John includes this picture for his servants. It says, now war arose in heaven... Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. You see, Satan knows his time is short and that makes him furious. And his fury is directed at us. By the way, I I don't think that we should see this vision given to uh, John for the churches as something that will take place in the future as much as it is something that we are living in the present, which actually has already taken place in the past. What do I mean by saying all that? Well, do you remember? I don't know if you know the account of the 72 who were sent out ahead of Jesus before he began his ministry. He tells them to announce the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is at hand even as they heal the sick. And what happened when they came back? Do Do you remember that? The 72 returned and they exclaimed, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus responded, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Right? Satan has been bound. And Satan has been thrown down. Now the salvation and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Jesus announces the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Satan is no longer in heaven. But woe to the earth. For the devil has come down to us in his passionate fury. Well, let's not leave it there, right? That could serve as an excursus on Lucifer, Satan, but again, in an effort to see the gospel according to Esther, let me connect this. Let me attempt to connect this to Haman, first of all, and then to ourselves, and finally to Jesus so that we might see the full gospel. First, then Haman. Haman, like Lucifer, was full of pride, right? He was within the king's courts. He was favored by the king, and yet he grew proud. Haman goes home, he gathers his friends around him, he begins to brag. He recounts his splendor, the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, and every instance where the king has magnified him and how he's been promoted above all the other princes and servants of the king. And he goes on to say, even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And you know what, tomorrow I'm invited to come with them again. I mean, his pride is just out of control, it's swelling. And I, I do think that we can also say that Haman wanted to fill the place of the king. And we might have to reach back to chapter three to see that, but there we would see Haman falsely accusing the Jews in an effort to essentially become the lawmaker. He said there there's a certain people who don't keep the king's laws. King, you would be wise to deal with them now, to just get rid of them altogether Haman is like Satan. He's your accuser who wants you judged and who wants you ultimately destroyed. You know, the book of of Job begins with a picture of Satan appearing with the angels, right, before the Most High, after going to and fro across the earth and, and being up to no good. And God says, have you seen Job, the righteous man who fears me? And Satan responds, I'm paraphrasing at this point, but he responds, he only fears you because you bless him. Turn your hand against him. Raise your hand against him. He's going to curse you to your face. You see, Satan wants to tell God how to do his job. Satan wants to stand in the seat of judgment, even as he would be a furious enemy of all mankind. And then finally, we see Haman full of passionate fury, just like Satan. I mean, it is his wife. Who suggests let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. You know, that's seventy five feet high. And I was I was reading this week that it may not have actually been a gallows on which to hang him, but a, a a giant spear on which to impale him in a public spectacle. And it says that idea pleased Haman. It pleased him so much that in his furious rage he ordered the gallows be erected immediately. Passionate fury leads to murderous thoughts. Hanging people, impaling them, devouring them. It's actually the word Peter uses to describe the machinations of Satan. It says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking who he can devour. What a picture, huh? Friend, Satan's real. He's just as real as Haman. He is full of pride. He wants to fill the place of the king, and he's filled with passionate fury at us. He is a real threat. So then how how can he be overcome? Well, before I turn to that, I I do want us to consider, if briefly, ourselves. Uh, Because honestly, each of us has a little Mr. Hyde inside our Dr. Jekyll, right? Right? Um, evil does not just—it's not just found from without, but it also resides within. And so, like Haman, we probably need to check our own pride, check our place, know our place, and uh, and check our passions. You know, God does not <coughs> condemn righteous indignation, but I think for most of us, if we're honest, we're going to be—if uh, we're going to be truthful—we are prone to um, furious passions that are ungodly. And these are the result, honestly, I believe, of our failure to apprehend the gospel in a very personal manner. I want want us to consider this directive that Paul offers uh, for the, the church in Ephesus. He said, Give no opportunity to the devil. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. How do we resist the devil? Notice that it's not just a command that's given here. As with all of his writings, Paul includes an indicative, which is what fuels the imperative. He says, God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, forgive each other. Right? you've been forgiven. Check your pride. You know, when we, when we truly apprehend that we are sinners who have been shown tremendous mercy, it's, it's then that we will begin to show mercy to one another. Pride disappears in the face of grace. And we have to know our place as well. We aren't God. And I think only God should demonstrate vengeful fury. In another place, Paul says, don't avenge yourselves leave room for god's wrath and satan's the lion let him be the one that devours we should never go around biting and devouring one another right let's check our pride know our place and even examine our passions you know even as i as i offer that um encouragement i confess to you that i'm a man who struggles with anger um Sometimes it even boils up into a fit of rage. My kids have seen that. I cannot hide that from my wife, right? These are not things you can hide if they're inside you. Maybe some of you have seen a glimpse of it. I hope not. But I need God's grace to teach me to be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But you want to know what the good news is? I am not on my own in this struggle. Mr. Hyde will never take over Dr. Jekyll because Christ lives in me. Thanks be to God that we don't have to fight that battle alone. Victory over the devil, even the devil inside, is found in Christ. Jesus is sovereign over Satan. Never forget, by the way, that Satan was a created being. Jesus is not. He was there in the beginning with God, right? And Jesus is sovereign over Satan, but you know how he's sovereign over Satan? He's sovereign over him through his sacrifice. Consider how Jesus achieves the sovereign victory over Satan. Jesus is not full of pride, first of all. It says he was in the form of God, yet he did not consider equality with God something to be clutched, grasped, Clenched in his fist. He he Where was where was Jesus' place? His place was rightfully at the right hand of God in heaven. But instead he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He took on the likeness of men. He took on our flesh. In fact, he even became sin for us. And why did he do all that? What was his passion? He went to a cross and he died so that you and I might not be enslaved. To the evil one eternally. We are redeemed by his blood. The sovereignty of our Savior is found in his sacrifice. The psalmist says, the Lord is on my side. I will not be afraid. What can man, what can even the devil do to me? Paul says to the Romans, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Right, who's who's to condemn? Jesus Christ. Who died? No, more than that, who is raised to life, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and is doing what? What did we confess earlier in our service? He's interceding for us, meaning he's praying for us. You have that advocate. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Well, where does that leave us as we get ready for another week ahead, another week in, engaged in the battle? I want to leave us with a thought that Chuck had touched upon last week. And it's simply this, patience. Uh, Patience, which is probably the opposite expression of anger, uh, is a virtue, clearly a virtue for the Christian. You know, tying our gospel back to the story of Esther and having to reach back just a bit, uh, I think it's interesting to me uh, that uh, Esther had two feasts and that Haman's uh, height of rage was demonstrated between the two feasts. Did she just lose her nerve that first time, you know, when when she could have asked the king for Haman's head? Um, He found favor with her. He had said to her, up to half my kingdom, just ask, I'll give it to you, right? So why the wait? Patience. Notice that she already honestly has the victory, even before Haman is destroyed. In in verse 8 of this chapter, she said, If I found favor in your sight, king, if I found favor in your sight, if it please you to grant my wish, come again tomorrow to the feast that I will prepare for the king and bring Haman with you. Is there any doubt he's coming again? (laughs) Right? Right? He had already offered her half his kingdom. Now all he has to do is come back to another feast. As long as he comes, he's going to grant that request. It's in the bag already. Just not yet. Friends, we stand likewise between the two feasts, if you will. We are enduring the rage of our enemy, but we are secure because... Honestly, the king is pleased with the meal that the Savior has presented to him. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. Jesus offers up his own body as the feast that pleases God and brings us to him in peace. And as often as we eat this bread and we're drinking this cup, we're proclaiming the Lord's death, even his victory, until he comes. We stand between two feasts, a morsel today, the wedding supper of the Lamb on that great judgment day, knowing that Satan has already been defeated. Good shepherd, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Let's pray.